So we are going to be starting the book of 1 Thessalonians. I thought today I wasn't sure how much time I was going to have with the camp update and uh, the financial update from Andy, so I thought we would just sort of do an overview of the book, and we're really going to be mostly today in Acts 17. Verses 1 through 9, it shows Paul's ministry to Thessalonica. Paul visited the city, in his, as we'll see in Acts, in his second missionary journey, and he was not able to stay there very long. Now, it is a town that is north of Athens. If you can picture Greece as it sticks out into the Mediterranean Sea, Thessalonica is up at the very tip of the... I should have looked this up. Is it a peninsula or an isthmus or... My geography skills are failing me as I'm looking out at all you. But Thessalonica is at the very top there. And in Acts 16, Paul gets a vision of a a Macedonian man calling him to come and bring the gospel. And as he is on his way into Greece proper, he stops here at, at Thessalonica. The author of the book is Paul. He states so at the very beginning and and. It has never really been challenged. This is the style it's written, the message that is delivered, all of it is, is very Pauline in its writing. And, and it has always been accepted that, as Paul states at the beginning of the book, that it was from him that he and did write the book. And they believe that he wrote it in 51 AD while he was ministering in Corinth. The purpose of the book. Paul had heard that the believers in Thessalonica were experiencing persecution for their faith. As we will see when we're reading in Acts, Paul himself faced persecution there, as he did in many places he did. But as he hears while he's in Athens that they are being persecuted, he feels compelled to write them. And so then when he is in Corinth, he, he writes them to encourage them. I mean, again, this is a group that he was not with for very long, and so he is, and he has heard that they are doing well, and he wants to encourage them in the things that they are doing, and to push them to endure through these trials and persecution they're facing until the return of Christ. Interesting thing with the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentions the return of Christ in all five chapters which of course were added later, but it still shows you that the thought is there continually from Paul from the beginning of the end, that this is what we are looking for. That we are waiting for the return of Christ to be reunited with with Jesus. So if you would, if you haven't already, I heard a lot of Bibles turning, we'll, we'll turn to Acts 17. Again, this is Paul's second missionary journey. Paul has been, again, facing persecution, has been beaten and jailed. The jailer comes to faith in Christ, and Paul is found out to be a Roman, and the leaders of the city in Philippi ask him to leave, and so he leaves. And we start in verse 1 there, and it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and, and there might have been others in their group, they leave Philippi, and they're heading southwest on what was known as the Ignatian Road. Now, Luke, as he's writing this throughout the book, he either says we or they. Here he says they. So evidently Luke stayed in Philippi. But Paul and Timothy and Silas carry on in their journey, seeking other places to share the gospel. And so as he lists these cities here, Amphipolis, that's 33 miles from Philippi on this Ignatian Way, which would have been about a day's journey by horse. And so he's listing these cities that they are traveling through um, as they are on their way to Thessalonica. And the next day, Apollonia is another 27 miles. And so, I mean, these aren't great distances by what we think of them today, but you think, I don't know, for me, a quarter of a mile on a horse sounds like a long way. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not packing into the station wagon and, and heading to the next town. They are, are journeying through these places. And it took another day of travel to get them to Thessalonica, which in modern day would be a town called Salonika. And it's on the Thermiac Gulf of the Aegean Sea. So and, and here we don't see that Paul only stayed one night in these places, but we don't read about any kind of ministering he did or anything that happened. And so it just sort of assumed that he was, he was being led towards Thessalonica, that that was where he was moving towards because Luke records so much more information about where he, you know, these places where he ministered. Thessalonica was the chief city in the capital of Macedonia. And, uh, overall, it was about 100 miles from Philippi, and it was a strategic center of the area, and so it became a strategic center for Paul in evangelizing in this region. In First Thessalonians, in the first chapter, as Paul is encouraging them on, in their faith and for what he's heard from them, he says in verses 7 and 8, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. So that's probably the reason Paul chose it, because as it's with its location and its influence in the region, that if he could get a stronghold there, it was sort of like Ephesus uh, in what modern-day Turkey, you know, in the Asia, what they call it there. Is, having these strongholds of faith would allow the faith to then spread on its own. I said it was neat when my dad went to work for the missionary organization he works for, and he was explaining to me what they do. He said, well, we go in and teach pastors so that they can teach other pastors. He says, our goal is to put ourselves out of business. <laughs> and that's what, and we should be making disciples who make other disciples. And that's, that's the fruit of what we see Paul doing here in Thessalonica, that he wasn't even able to stay there long, and yet they were able to reach that region for Christ. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them 
again, it said in verse 1 that there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. So we see here that Paul goes for three Sabbaths to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. For that reason, there are some who think that his time of ministry in Thessalonica was less than a month. I tend to think that he had those three Sabbaths with the Jews in the synagogue, and then as the persecution started, that he stayed in the region because, as we'll see, there were Gentile converts as well, and that he he worked with those that he had ministered to and that had, that had come to faith. We know it wasn't for very long, but I think it was longer than three weeks. It was, it was enough time that he was able to teach them and encourage them so that they could go forth and make disciples, that they were, they were already mature in their faith. One commentary I was reading here in Acts, when it was discussing this and how long he was there, it says we don't really know, but we know it was a short time. And it says maybe that even today we should expect more out of young believers. That there's something beautiful about people taking this faith that they come to, this belief in Jesus Christ, and learning about what he wants to do in your life and just grabbing hold of it. I'm not saying, well, maybe in a few years when I've read through the Bible more or I've heard more teaching or it's being hungry for teaching, being hungry for not only knowledge but to to serve and to give and growing through all of those things. And, and I think this is a, a really neat example of, of how God worked in these people. I think it's interesting there in verse 3, again, it says, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So Luke describes Paul's evangelizing of the Jews in the synagogue as reasoning from the scriptures and explaining and giving evidence. You know, with, with the Jewish people, Uh, they had a a vast knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And what this reminds me of is is like Jesus on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. That as these two men don't realize that they are speaking with the risen Christ, and they're shocked because he doesn't seem to know about Jesus' crucifixion, even though they're talking to Jesus. Jesus then goes forth to explain to them, and I wish... They'd recorded the whole thing. <laughs> but Jesus starts at the beginning of the Old Testament Scriptures and explains to them all the way through it of how these things were prophesied over and over again. And we can see that as we read through the Old Testament and so many vivid examples that, that God gives pointing towards who the Messiah would be and what he would have to do. And that's the truth that Paul is trying to bring out with his vast knowledge of the Old Testament, that as he has seen the risen Lord, as he has believed, as he has been taught and learned, that as he is sharing with the Jews, 
he's pointing to them through evidence, through explanation, and through proclaiming to them the truth. I think, again, this is something that as we look at how, well, I don't, I don't know if I can share the gospel. Well, you need truth, but you also need the boldness to proclaim. So that truth and explaining and proclaiming is, is how we see Paul sharing the gospel so that these Jewish hearers would be convinced that their scripture taught what did happen to Jesus, that their Messiah would need to suffer and be put to death and rise again from the grave. And Paul used the Old Testament to prove that. Then we see the outcome in, in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And so we see here, it, it hints at that here, and I think that evidence that we looked at of the, the spread of the gospel in that region points to the majority of the converts were not Jewish people, that they were these God-fearing Greeks that were hungry for the truth, that their, their methods of worship were just as empty as when we worship ourselves today. That they did all of these temple things and festivals and they had all of these gods and yet it provided no meaning in their life. And so for these Greeks that were hungry for the truth, that were seeking God, that this came as a welcome truth from Paul. And a large number of them believe. Verse 5, But the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And so, this again is a, a pattern for Paul that's it's a pattern for him to go to the synagogue first, to reach the people that he shares the most in common with. But it's also a pattern, it's happened in Galatia and in Acts 13 and 14, that this jealousy in the Jews comes up. I mean, that they were, again, their faith ostracized them from everyone around them. Jews were not liked in the Roman Empire. They ate different foods. They wouldn't worship the emperor. They only worshiped one god. They only worked six days a week. Uh, and they were very self-righteous people. And so they were very ostracized because of their faith. And so to hear that this Jesus guy, whom their leaders in Jerusalem had put to death, was their Messiah, it makes them angry. And to see Paul pulling their friends and their family into this faith in Jesus Christ and these new teachings that they didn't believe, it makes them really angry. And so to deal with it, they start a mob. It's this mob mentality that has been seen in people throughout all times, and we can see it today. When someone is sharing a truth that you're not fond of, you just ignore it? Well, I would. I would hope you would. 
what you see like on college campuses today, when conservative speakers go to speak, they have to pay enormous amounts of security to protect them. And oftentimes, the people in the room where they're speaking can't even hear what's being said because the mobs will gather outside the building and outside the doors and chant and shout and sing to try and overwhelm what's being said. And that's what we're seeing here is that the, the anger, they aren't going to just ignore it. I think they fear this truth, but they're not accepting of it. And so they, they gather these wicked men and they go to the house of Jason. Jason was evidently Paul's host while he was there. It is a Greek name, and it's, it's like the Greek equivalent of Joshua. And so it's most likely a Jewish man living there in Greece. And they seek to bring them out to the people. They want to do them harm. Verses 6 and, six and 7. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. It's interesting, what does their accusation of Paul and Silas and Timothy sound like? what the Sanhedrin told Pilate. He says he's a king. We only worship Caesar. And the Jews themselves, even there in Greece, would have hated being under Roman rule and who Caesar was, and they certainly didn't worship him as a god as they were supposed to. And yet they go to this convenient truth of saying that, well, Jesus, they say he's a king, and we only worship Caesar, and so you have to do something about this. Well, I thought one of the best things I read this week, though, was their first accusation there, that, that they were upsetting the world. William Barclay said, Those, they said, who are upsetting the civilized world have arrived here. That is one of the greatest compliments which has ever been paid to Christianity. When Christianity really goes into action, it must cause a revolution both in the life and the individual and in the life of the society. That our faith should upset the apple cart. And it was, and what a compliment that is. And we see in other places that, you know, if a large number of people are getting saved and they're not going to the temple or they're not paying the magicians, they're not doing all these other things. This new faith is changing their life and it is upsetting people's ways of making money. It's making them question their own realities. So I thought that was really neat, that this is a, an enormous compliment. And it's something we should think about. In what ways does our faith change our world individually as a society? Verses 8 and 9, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. And so they, they, they never found Paul and Silas and Timothy, but they have Jason there, this guy who was a resident of the city. And so it says there that uh, when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. 
So Jason is being held by these authorities, and they can't find the people they really want to kick out of the city. And since Jason is, has welcomed them, since he is hosting them, they make him pledge money that Paul and his cohorts aren't going to cause any more trouble, that they're going to leave the city. And so Jason had to do that so that he himself could be released. It's sort of like the opposite of, of paying someone's bail bond. That if one of my kids got arrested and I paid their bail bond, I'm saying they for sure will show up on the day they're supposed to be in court. Jason is saying, I will pay this money and promise you'll never see these people again. And if indeed Paul and Silas and Timothy did leave, then he would get his pledge back. But if they continued to disrupt the city, then his money would be forfeited and he would face further trials. Then we see in verse 10 that Paul does move on. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I love Paul's tenacity. And things did not go well in Philippi. Well, physically for him, at least. For the Lord's work, it did. Things here, he's there a short time. We'll guess a few months. And he gets run out of the city at night. And what does he do when he shows up in Berea? Goes right to the synagogue. In spite of all the antagonism and the mobs and the jailings and the beatings, Paul just continues doing God's work. I think that's interesting, again, in writing that to these believers there, that he's found out they are facing persecution, probably from these very same people who ran him out of the city. As he is seeking to encourage them, he's not encouraging them. You know, if I was writing to a believer in the Middle East, I could give them places in God's word where they are told to be encouraged, but I have never faced that kind of persecution in fear for my life or in fear for my family because of my faith. And yet Paul had, and he endured and he stayed strong through it because his sole focus was on serving his Lord in the, the works that were put before him. So the outline of the book of Thessalonica, we go back and continue this sort of overview of it now that we have the background of how these believers came to be. As in all his letters, Paul starts with a greeting, and then chapters 1 through 3 are a, are a celebration of faithfulness, in chapters 4 and 5, Paul gives some teaching on holiness and how they're to be living. And really, it's a, it's a challenge to grow even more. That they, are, they have shown great maturity in their faith already. We've seen how they've, they've spread the gospel. Um, but he's challenging them in those last couple chapters even more. One of the neat things about the way the book is laid out is that, again, chapters 2 and 3, or 1, 2, and 3 are encouragement. Chapters 4 and 5 are a challenge. Uh, Paul starts the book with a prayer of thanksgiving. 
Verse 1 is sort of his, his opening there. And verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he opens with this prayer of thanksgiving that as he is encouraging them for what he has heard about their faith, that he does it in writing down a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And then as he is transitioning between encouragement and challenge, in chapter 3, Starting in verse 11, he has a prayer for endurance. Now may the God and Father himself and Jesus Christ our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That leads into, again, this this challenge of growing in their faith and continuing to endure. And then he ends with a prayer of hope. Starting in chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you he also will bring it to pass. It's neat when we think about prayer and praying for others to see Paul here in this, his writing. He doesn't just say, I'm praying for you. But he writes out his prayers for them. And he shares how his heart opens up to God about these believers whom he loves and whom he misses, and whom he wants to see grow. So as we get ready to start this book, I, you know, I chose it because it is an encouraging, it is an encouraging book. Uh, you know, Paul has to write the letter of 1 Corinthians to a church that he spent much more time with, and they got every problem in the world. They haven't grown in their faith at all. They've gone backwards. But here in, in Thessalonica, he, he only got to be with them a short time, and yet he hears all these wonderful things about what is happening, and he wants to, to give them thanksgiving, to encourage them from his own heart, and yet also challenge them to continue to grow, which we all always need. And again, he's doing it all from the perspective of the return of our Lord which is something that we all should be focusing on. That how we live our lives, I think, is dependent on what we are living them for. And we can love God's Word and yet be wrapped up in our jobs and our families and all of these things. And it just feels like, well, you know, I'm 41 now. I got another 30 or 40 years and I'll get there. But am I living like Jesus could come back right now? 
that it could be any moment. And I think to these believers, Paul is, is encouraging them in this because of the trials they're facing that stay steadfast in your faith because Jesus could come back at any moment and deliver you from those. But as Jesus said to the, the churches in Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, as he encouraged them to be overcomers, Paul here is encouraging them to to be overcomers in the trials they're facing because of Jesus' imminent return. Matthew 25, starting in verse 42, this is what Jesus, is all of a discourse right before, in the week of his crucifixion as he is teaching his disciples about the things to come. He says, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know in which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And that's us as believers, just focus on the return of Jesus and being found alert. So that was my reason for doing this, and I hope as we go through 1 Thessalonians that it will be encouraging. These are are uplifting things that Paul is is writing to them and hoping it will be uplifting for us as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your word, that all of it was inspired by you, that it is God-breathed, and it is beneficial for us to teach us, to correct us, to help us grow. We pray that as we start this book that... uh, that we will learn, that we will be open to correction, and that we as a church will grow through Paul's words to the church there in Thessalonica. In Jesus' name we pray.